So tonight, we're actually going to be talking about something that, that kind of goes hand in hand, goes along those same lines, and that's faith. So let's go ahead and read a couple of verses here, and then we'll pray for our time together, and we'll also lift up all of these people in prayer. So Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then jumping down to verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, and, and we do desire to lift up these prayer requests unto you. Father, as we've prayed before, you know our hearts, you know our struggles, you know every situation, and, and you know all of the burdens that have been carried into this room tonight. But Father, we do lift up Ephraim to you and the, the physical ailments that he's going through, and Pastor Tom and Pastor Charlie, and we also lift up Pastor Joe as he prepares to make this trip for a surgery next week. Father, we just pray that you would have your hand upon each one of them, that you would bring healing, that you would bring restoration to their bodies, and Lord, that you would grant them that perfect peace that passes all understanding through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray for their families, that you would continue to comfort them to be... Just that God that, that knows our every struggle, that knows our every tear, and that you would continue to show yourself strong on our behalf. We also pray, Father, that you would give the medical professionals wisdom, that you would guide their hands, Lord, that you would give them knowledge and wisdom beyond their, their years, and Father, that everything would just go according to your plan. We also pray tonight for our time together. We pray that, Father, you would prepare our hearts to hear from your word. And, and Lord, I pray that you would give me your words to speak and not my own. Lord, we pray that, that all of this would be for your glory and for your honor. And we ask and pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we were going through um, this week and we were talking about just a lot of the different things that are taking place in the congregation and then finding out that Pastor Charlie wasn't going to be here tonight and asking if I would share, it just really began to strike me something that, that my daughter had learned in school this past year. My children attend a Christian school and, and this year for my third grade daughter, one of the things that she had to do was she had to memorize Hebrews chapter 11. And she would go through, and, and it was week by week, you know, she would, she would get a passage, and it would be for a two or three week span, and she would have to recite it and, and repeat it and constantly studying it. She would say it out loud. She would walk around the house. We'd be in the car, and, and everywhere we went. And the phrase that constantly comes up in Hebrews chapter 11 is by faith. And the way that, for whatever reason, the way that they decided to teach this to the kids is by faith, and then they would go into whatever it was. And so it was almost like a running joke for a while because literally for nine months, it was by faith, and then we would get into whatever it is that she was going to talk about. And, and it was something that was kind of funny for us, but also it was a great reminder. It was something that that reminded me that if that was so important to God, that he inspired Paul to write it here so many times in this one chapter, 
just over and over that these two simple words must be extremely important, not only to him, but obviously for us. And they're very important to our walk with God. And so it's something that we need to, to really focus upon. Unfortunately for us, the word faith is an, another one of those words, just like love, that has been mischaracterized, misused, and tossed about in so many different ways that the true meaning, especially as it relates to children of God, has oftentimes been lost on us. Faith is often talked about in churches as this mystical thing. My, some preachers talk about it as if it's almost like a genie. And while other preachers dismiss it almost entirely, and God can't perform miracles anymore, that miracles ended when the apostles passed away. And yet, I, I don't think that it's either one of those. I think it's right in between. But faith in, is often talked about in positive and negative confessions of faith, whereby it's believed that a child of God can actually will something into existence. It's almost as if they are coercing God or forcing God to function just like the genie from Aladdin's lamp. Just by speaking it aloud, they can make it happen, whether good or bad. There are handkerchiefs and vials of water or oil. There's scarves and assorted other blessed items that can be bought for a hefty price. And the promise is that with all of these items, it's going to bring blessing and healing upon the buyer or the user. And if you're sick or you're struggling in your life, then it must be because of your lack of faith. And if you're blessed beyond measure, then it must obviously also in turn be because of your great faith. And this is just a small portion of the statements and the beliefs that are tossed around inside the physical church regarding faith. But I would suggest to you that all of these are untrue and don't have root in the Bible. And if that's the case, what does the Bible really have to say about faith? To have faith in God, it's a spiritual thing. Faith is literally the definition, a conviction of the truth of anything. So to be so rooted and grounded in it, to firmly believe it, so much so that you have a conviction, that you can't be swayed in any direction. To have a strong belief. Now, everyone has faith, and we exhibit it several times a day. Obviously, all of us here tonight are wearing clothes. We all have faith that these clothes are going to cover our nakedness for as long as we're wearing them. We have faith in that. We trust in that. We know that. There's, there's not a, a, I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if suddenly there's going to be a, a little bit of a, the air conditioner is going to turn on and all my clothes are going to fall off. We have faith. We have faith in that. You're all here tonight on a Wednesday evening. Whether you're here in person or you're joining us via the online stream, you had faith in us here at this fellowship that we would hold true to our word and that we would have a church service tonight starting at 7 o'clock. You had to have faith in that in order to show up. Otherwise, the doors would be locked and you would be here by yourself. But you trusted not only that we would have a service, but you trusted that there would be other children of God there to meet with, to fellowship with, and to worship God together with. Even the very chairs that you're sitting in have earned your faith and your trust because all of you have your full body weight rested on them. I don't see anybody hovering above their chair. So you're all sitting there with faith that the chair is going to hold you up. So we all have faith, and the amount of faith that we have in various people and various things differs, but we all have faith, and we exhibit it on a daily basis. But a spiritual faith goes much deeper than just believing in chairs or clothes or people 
that they will keep their word. Faith, from a spiritual perspective, as it's talked about here in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that are not seen. So those are all the things that we see, and we, we have evidence of that. But what he's talking about as spiritual faith is the substance of things that are hoped for that are not yet seen. Physical, earthly hope is frail and fickle because it's placed in frail and fickle people or things. The chairs, I'm sure that we've all seen America's Funniest Home Videos. There are times that the chair that they placed their faith in did not hold up that end of the bargain. And they end up on the floor and it's this comedic thing and, and it shows up on America's Funniest Home Videos. Sometimes, despite our best efforts here at Calvary Chapel of El Paso, Wednesday service doesn't start at 7 o'clock on the dot. Sometimes it starts at 7.01, 7.02, 7.05. Because we're frail, we're fickle. And I'm sure that we all have faith in our clothes, but we also know that there are times that there are wardrobe malfunctions. There's a gust of wind and it blows something in, the, in a direction that we weren't expecting. Something that, that maybe just didn't look the way that it was supposed to do. Uh, you, you, there's all sorts of different things. So we have faith in these things and for the most part, that faith is well placed. But it is a frail and fickle thing and so we still see the failure of that. But our spiritual hope, our spiritual faith is sure and steadfast because that hope and that faith is placed in a sure and steadfast God who is unfailing and unchanging. And God has this tremendous track record of faithfulness and he has shared just a little portion of that through his word. You know, when John writes at the end of the, the Gospel of John, he says that, and these are just basically a snippet. These are just a small portion of the things that were done by Jesus. That if we were to go through and, and recount everything that he had done in his life, that there weren't enough books to contain it. And it's the same thing with the Word of God. This is just a, a snippet. It's just a portion of all the different ways that God has worked throughout time. But even in that snippet, even in these pictures, we see his track record of faithfulness. We see his holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now you look at the description here, and this is amazing. All of the things that are taking place, and even the creatures that are saying this, these are amazing to look at. I mean, just look at that description, that, that each one, above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings. Okay, we, we've never seen that. But each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. He had six wings, and they were in sets of two, and each was for a purpose, and yet they weren't talking about each other. They weren't, the, Isaiah isn't talking about these guys He's talking about what they are talking about. As one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory, of God's glory. That even the creation of, of these seraphim, that that is part of God's glory because God is the one that created it. 
In Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we see the same idea. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, in the midst of all of this amazing beauty, in the midst of all of these awesome creatures, it's the glory of God that shines through. It's the holiness of God. It's something that we've talked about several times before from this pulpit that, that that's the only description that you see repeated three straight times. Holy, holy, holy. Not just, 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 righteous, 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 loving, loving, loving. It's holy, holy, holy. His holiness. And it, his holiness is something that you can bank on. It's something that he's had, he was, who is, and is to come. He will always be holy. He will always be who he has been because he never changes. He's worthy. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, the very next section, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And there's so much there, but again, it's these creatures, and, and as they're giving glory and honor and thanks to, to God who sits on the throne, these 24 elders are there, and they fall down before him, they worship him, they cast their crowns down before the throne, but notice what they say in verse 11, that you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. It was something that we sang tonight, that you are worthy of all the praise that we could ever bring. That if we praised God with every breath that we took, that it still wouldn't be enough because he is so worthy and deserving of all of it. And then it says, for you created all things, and notice, by your will, they exist. By your will. That just by his will, just because he desires that it be so, everything exists. And just because he spoke it into existence, it was created. And when you go through and you look at the, the book of Genesis and you look at many of the passages and the descriptions that talk about the creation of the earth, this is not creating something out of something. This is creating something out of nothing. That there was nothing. And he spoke it all into existence. He's the only one that has ever been able to do that and the only one that ever will. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That he's been since before time, he will exceed well past time, the end of time, that he's forever. He's infinite and he's Almighty. In Revelation 21, verses 5 through 7, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And so in this passage, we're, we're talking about being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, but also it says that, behold, I make all things new. Again, this is God who created everything, who spoke everything into existence, who knows us deeper and more intimately than anyone else or anything else ever could. And he makes all things new. When we come to him, when we have this, this life-changing experience where we give our lives to him, where we commit ourselves to him, he comes in and he begins to make changes and he makes us new. It's creating something out of nothing. It's the same word, the same phrase that's used. It, it's not that he's creating something that is now holy and righteous out of everything that was at war with God. He's creating a new creation, a new creation. But then he says, right for these words are true and faithful something that there's so many passages that I wanted to, to go through tonight, but, but one that I, I didn't have a chance is talking about the, the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis, I believe it's 15. And God is promising all of these things to Abraham. He's telling him that, that your descendants are going to be more than the stars in the sky, more than the, the sand by the sea. And he tells him that I'm going to make this covenant with you. And he tells Abraham, okay, I need you to go out and do all this to prepare for, for what they would do. It's a, a ritual so that they could go through and make this covenant. If two men or two, two individuals were going to make a covenant, they had to go through and they had to, to cut and sacrifice. And then they had to walk in between it. And what, what happens is Abraham waits and waits and waits and God doesn't show up. And God waits until Abraham falls asleep, and then God performs both sides of the covenant. Because he wasn't making the covenant, and it was dependent on Abraham. He was making a covenant with Abraham that was entirely dependent upon God. And that's the same kind of covenant, the new covenant, that he's made with us. That if you tonight here are a child of God, God has made that covenant. He's made that promise. He's made that sacrifice for us but it's entirely dependent upon him. It's not dependent upon us. So he's the beginning and the end. His words are true and faithful. And he says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But again, he's true to his word. These words are true and faithful. Going back to the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses nine through 10, it says, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And this, again, gives, gives such a great picture of who God is, that he is faithful and he is true to his word whether that's a good word to us or whether that's a bad word to us. Whether he is promising blessing or whether he is promising punishment, he is true and he is faithful to his word. He says, know that the Lord your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant, who keeps promises and mercy for a thousand generations beyond, basically what it's saying is beyond your lifespan, beyond what we would ever hope to achieve with those who love him and keep his commandments, but also that he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. 
and he will not be slack. That means he, he's not going to cut the corner on it. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. I think we, we've all experienced those people that they, they say one thing to our face and then they, they turn around and they say another behind our back. And we sometimes think of it that we get it in our heads that that's the way God is. But God is not like that. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. When he says you need to repent, you need to turn from that or else there are going to be consequences, there are going to be consequences. When God says that you will be my child, he means you will be my child. That includes the discipline. That includes the chastening. That includes the correction. Because God has promised to be our father. Because he has promised to help us to be more like him. That he, he's promised that he never tempts us. He will never tempt us. But in every temptation, he prepares a way of escape. So that we would be able to avoid that temptation. To avoid falling into that. He's unchanging. In James chapter 1 verses 17 through 18. It says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he says that, that all of these things come from above, and we've talked about that before, but something here is that it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. That means there's no change. There's no mood change. There's no mood swing. It's not that God is this evil, vindictive God, and then sometimes he's nice and loving. It's not that sometimes God is all about war and killing, and sometimes he's all about love and grace and mercy. That God is the same God, all the way through, that his character is unchanged. There's no variation. There's no shadow of turning. And so all of it is the same. Some people would like to believe that, that there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. And that's just not the case. That he is faithful, he's true, he's unchanging, he's true to his word. There is no variation or shadow of turning. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And he is the God that is right now. Because he is who was, is and is to come because it's the same person the same god he hasn't changed and it says of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth again he spoke us into existence and then this new covenant that he he's given to us it's something that he has done by himself for our benefit for our benefit just because of the love that he has, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we would be this, this special people, this peculiar people, as it says, that we would be different, that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, that we would be holy because he who calls us is holy. And so this is just a, a small portion of the track record that God has given to us of himself, of who he is. But what does faith in God look like practically? So we've talked about who that faith is in, but now what does that faith look like practically in our lives? Well, one of the verses that we read to start tonight was Hebrews 11, verse 6, where it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So obviously it is important. It is important that we have faith in God. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is. So he's describing what that faith is. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And then he says, for, which means the continuation, the extension of that thought, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, must believe that he is who he says he is, must believe that he is the one true living God, that he was, he is, and he is to come, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As you go through the word of God, you see that time and time again, that if my people who are called by my name will repent, will turn from their sins and return to me, then he will heal and he will restore. It's a promise from the Old Testament and it continues on today. In the New Testament, he talks about the same thing, that that if we love him, that we should keep his commandments. And that if we abide in him, and he abides in us, then we have this this beautiful relationship where we can now have access to the Holy Spirit, where we now have the, the empowerment to be able to live as he lived, to be as he is, to live holy, to be sanctified, to be set apart, to have a good testimony. It says in verse two, for by it, by faith, This faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, this faith, by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. And that gets us into the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, where as you go through this, some some preachers talk about it, that, that it could be all of these other things. We talk about the hall of faith. You know, you have the hall of fame. Well, this is kind of like the hall of faith. He goes through and and. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing about all of these men and women that showed this faith in God, this example for us to have faith like them. But the flip side of that coin is that we know a lot about most of these people. And what we know is that none of them were perfect. In fact, far from it. Far from it. The first one, he says, by faith, in verse 4, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. And so Abel, the, going all the way back to Genesis, Cain and Abel, it's something that even non-believers know a little bit about. You have this 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 angst between the brothers, that Cain and Abel, they're both offering sacrifices to God, and one is acceptable unto the Lord and the other one is not. And we could go through and and you can read about that in the beginning of Genesis, and you see that, that it wasn't just because Abel was a holy person, it wasn't because Abel was sinless, it wasn't because Abel was perfect, it was because Abel was obedient. Because Abel was obedient. Because he trusted in the word of God. Not, this, not the Bible, but the literal words of God. The things that God had spoken to them about how they were to approach God, about how they were to offer the sacrifices, that Abel was faithful in that. That he trusted when God said, this is what I want and this is how I want it, that Abel said, I'm going to do it the way God said. And that Cain's, Cain's attitude was much different. Cain decided that he was going to do it his own way, in his own strength, in his own abilities, in his own means, and it was unacceptable before God. And what did that lead to? 
That this faithfulness, because that's what we're talking about. It says, by faith, Abel offered this to God. And now, through it, still he being dead still speaks. What he's saying is that his example still speaks. That he's still someone that we should look to as an example of faith. And what did it get him? Going back to some of the things that we talked about before, well, if you have great faith, then you shouldn't get sick, you shouldn't get ill, you shouldn't have financial burdens, you shouldn't have any of these things, because if you have truly have faith, then your life should be good, your life should be easy, your life should be perfect. And yet, what did faithfulness to God get Abel? It got him death by the hand of his brother, that his brother Cain killed him because of the jealousy over God's favor upon Abel's life. So Abel was faithful to God and his reward for that, his physical earthly reward was death. That his brother killed him, but his heavenly reward was so much greater than anything else that he could have received on the earth. And so that's Abel, by faith, Abel did this. Then jumping down, the next one would be Enoch. In verse 5, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we see that in context that that particular phrase or verse is talking directly about Enoch. That Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. What it literally means is that he walked with God. He was talking to God. He was having this conversation with God, and God just took him to heaven. That God just took him. He, he didn't die. He just went to heaven. He was here, and then he wasn't. The, the picture is the same picture that we see in the New Testament of the rapture. That we are here, and then all of a sudden, we're not going to be here. We're going to be with him. And that it was in a moment, in an instant, in a, the twinkling of an eye, that Enoch, because he pleased God, Enoch was taken up to spend all of eternity with God. That, that God expedited his journey to heaven. And God said, you know what, you're doing great, you are pleasing to me, and he took him up. And then it says, that wouldn't have been possible if Enoch didn't have faith, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. But then he gets to verse 7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now if you know a little bit about Noah, you know about the ark. You know about all the animals, you know about the 40 days and 40 nights of being out in the water and the rain and the pouring and all of these things and his faithfulness and his family and that it was through his family that then the earth was repopulated. But if you go just a little bit beyond that, there's a story that's related to us about the end of Noah's life. That Noah got drunk and in his drunkenness, his nakedness was revealed to his son and so his son was cursed because of that. And it was a, a frailty. It was a frailty of Noah that caused that. Sure, the son had his own issue, and, and that was part of the problem. But Noah was not perfect. You know, when you go through and you read Genesis chapter 6, and you see what God describes Noah as a man that was perfect in his generations, it, it doesn't mean perfect as in holy, blameless, never sinned. It means that he 
had faith in God, that he desired to do what God asked of him, that he genuinely felt remorse over his shortcomings, over his failures, over his sins before God. And so Noah was an imperfect person, and yet it was through faith that he received this great testimony before God. And then you get to one of the, the greatest stories of failure and success and, and a roller coaster of that. Just one failure followed by a success, followed by a greater failure, followed by a greater success. And that was really the life of Abraham. Abraham just could not get out of his own way. When God would bless him, God would tell him, this is what, what I have for you. This is what I want for you. Abraham would do something dumb. Just without fail, every time Abraham would do something dumb. And then God would come and he would restore him. He would walk with him. He would talk with him. That Abraham was described as a friend of God. And God would come and he would bless him once again. And then Abraham would turn around and do something else that was even dumber than what he had done before. And it was just this constant roller coaster, this pinball effect, just back and forth, back and forth between doing something that was good and doing something that was bad, doing something that was faithful, doing something that showed his lack of faith. You know, when you go through here and it says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So he got up and he went. This was such a, a big deal because up until this point in time, Abraham really didn't know God. And so God comes to him and he tells him, I need you to get up and I need you to leave everything that you know and I need you to go out to this place that you don't know and I need you to trust me in that. It would have been very difficult for most of us, if not all of us, to be as faithful as Abraham was and to get up and to go. But Abraham did just that. He obeyed when he was called to go out. And then in verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so he waited in this land, even though he didn't get to see it with his own eyes, that he trusted in the words that God had spoken to him. That even though God had said all of these things, most of which he never got to actually see with his own eyes, never got to experience himself, that he trusted in God. And it was accounted unto him as righteousness. The faith that he had, the trust that he had in God, the relationship that he had with God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then you have his wife, Sarah, in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. And if you know the story of Abraham and Sarai, who had become Sarah, you know that it didn't start out that way. That when God came and he visited with Abraham and he told Abraham, this is how it's going to happen, that she laughed. She laughed at the words of God, at, at the promise that had just been given to Abram. She laughed. And yet here in the book of Hebrews, it says that because she judged him faithful who had promised. So it wasn't necessarily that she got it right from the get-go, but it was that by the end, she knew who was true. And these are all exhortations and encouragements to us because we all fail. We all fail when it comes to faith. 
There's not a single person, I, I truly believe this, that there's not a single person that has this tremendous, unshakable, unwavering faith that they never miss a step. But that's the goal. That's our desire. That's what we want to be like. That's where we want to get to. And what it is, is that the moment that we recognize our failure to trust in the one true living God, we need to correct that mistake. And we need to restore that relationship. We need to get our eyes back on God. We have to, to look back at his faithfulness. Not to look at all of the ways that, that God, you're saying that this is going to happen, but I see all of these roadblocks and these pitfalls. I see all of these people that are saying this can't happen. I see the, the medical diagnosis. I see the bank statement. I see all of these different things. God, I don't understand how this is going to work but I'm still gonna trust you anyway. God, you know my heart, you know my struggles, you know my frailty, you know that, that when I first met this situation, when I first encountered this struggle, that my first response was not one of faith, that my first response was one of fear. And, and that it took a while, but God, I want to have faith in you. I want to trust in you. I want to trust in the truth of your word and the promises that you have. I want to trust the word that you are speaking to me directly. I want to have that faith, that childlike faith. We talk about a childlike faith. And, and what, is, what is childlike faith? Childlike faith, having four kids, I understand what childlike faith is so much better now. They... They trust immensely, just immensely in, in my wife and I. When we were watching this show the other night and, and it was, it's this really cheesy show, but, but the kids like it, I like it. And so we were watching it all together. And there was this one phrase that came out in the middle of the show and it said that, that you're not afraid of the dark. You're afraid of being alone in the dark. And I started to think about that and it is so true. And, and that, to me, just perfectly put into perspective that childlike faith. Because if the lights go out, the power goes out, my daughter, especially my eight-year-old, she is just deathly afraid of lightning storms and thunderstorms and, and rain and, and all of these things. And when it's going on, she immediately assumes that the power is going to go out. But she knows that if she is anywhere close to me or to my wife, that she doesn't have to worry. And it, it is amazing to watch it in actual practice that if the power goes out and the lights go out and it's late at night and she's on the other side of the house, there are screams, there is terror, there is running into walls, there's just chaos because they are trying to find us. But if we're all together in the same room, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, mom, dad, are you there? And as soon as we respond, you can, you can almost feel the fear evaporate. And that is a childlike faith. That they, they don't know that I have no power over the electricity. They don't know that I, I can't do anything to fix it. I, I, can't, I can't see any better in the dark than they can. I, I'm no different than them. But they have this childlike faith in their parents to protect them. When, when we were all kids, 
and something would go wrong, something was devastating in our lives, and, and our parents or somebody that, that we loved and we trusted, we respected, came and said, you know what, it's going to work out and you don't, you don't have to worry about it. There was safety in that. There was security in that. For some of us, we still find that in, in other people, but that is something that we should really find in God. That when we are going through these things, when we're going through the challenges, that we should look to God and we should say, God, I don't understand. I'm, I'm a little freaked out. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know you do. I know you do. And so I'm going to trust that you know what's, what's about to take place and that you know what you're doing and give me wisdom and give me peace and get me through this. And we need to get to a place where there is safety and security in that, where there is a, a true conviction in that. It's not a faith that we have faith in faith because that, that doesn't count, that doesn't do anything. It's the faith in the God who is the one true living God who's almighty, who could speak things into existence. That's the faith. That's the power. The power isn't in the faith itself. The power is in God. The faith is just our trusting in the power of God. Faith is not something that we, even as we're going through this, he's not talking about faith being the, the be-all, end-all. He's talking about God being the be-all, end-all, and the faith is in God. The faith is in God. And Abraham, again, he had this faith. It was accounted to him for righteousness, but he went into a different place and he said, you know what? It looks like they're going to kill me. If, if they find out that I'm your husband, they're going to kill me. So just tell them that you're my sister. And so they would go into a different place and that, that happened. And then God came by and God resolved the whole situation. And, and Abraham was convicted. He, he was corrected in it. And then you know how Abraham responded? He did the exact same thing a second time. They went to a different place and he said, you know what, we made it through last time, but this time might be different because maybe God's not gonna show up. And so they might kill me if they find out that you are my wife. So just tell them that you're my sister. And this is the man that it says he was a friend of God and his faithfulness was accounted unto him as righteousness. That's Abraham. Therefore, from one man in verse 12, and him as good as dead, basically he was well beyond the years when he should have uh, had children, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And then jumping a little further down in verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11, again, still talking about Abraham, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So this is fast forwarding to a little bit later on in Abraham's life. He's already had the issue where he and Sarah didn't believe at first that God was truly going to come through on his promise. Where they, Sarah laughed in the tent when God spoke that word to them. They already went through going to all of these different lands and saying, well, she's my sister, she's not my wife. And doing it a second time, she's my sister, she's not my wife. 
This is beyond when, when all of these things had already happened. And then when it hadn't taken place yet, that Sarah still hadn't had a child, that Sarah said, you know what, maybe God's not really going to have this happen like that. So maybe you should go and sleep with the maid. And the maid is going to be how, how this happens. And they go through that little side, side route of unbelief. And then fast forwarding through all of that, then it actually happens. And Sarah conceives and she has a son and his name is Isaac. And now Isaac is a young man. He's not a boy at, at this point in time. He's a young man. And God comes to Abraham and he tells him, I need you to take your son and you need to go up on this mountain and you need to sacrifice your son. The son who I already promised to you, the son who I promised that through him is going to be your line and your inheritance and your descendants that's going to be more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And after all of the disbelief, all of the, how can this happen? I'm so far beyond the age. And then the, the child comes, he grows to be a man, and God says, sacrifice him, kill him, offer him up to me. And Abraham says, I'm going to do it. And the thought process, the mentality, the things that were going through Abraham's heart and his mind were that God was able to raise him up. That if God says, lay him down, that God has the power to raise him up again. That was the faith that Abraham had grown into. The faith that Abraham had grown into. Because that's another part and aspect of faith that, that I think oftentimes gets lost for us is that our faith has to continue to grow. Again, it's not a growing in the faith of faith itself. It's a growing in our reliance, in our trust in God. That God continues to show himself faithful in all of his promises, in all of his word, in everything that he says, everything that he does, that he works in our lives, through our lives, moment by moment, day by day, that he has promised to never leave us or forsake us, that he is always there and learning to trust in that. And the more that we trust in that, the, the longer the track record is, the more things that we can look back and, and have what they would call in the Old Testament stones of remembrance, the more things that we can look back at and say, this is how God worked in this totally unwinnable situation in my life. The more things that we can look back and say, I've already seen the hand of God at work, the easier it becomes to trust the hand of God at work presently. And I guarantee you that we have to be able to look back at those things because the things that are coming up for us are greater than the things that we've already been brought through. That's just life. That is what this world has for us. We're going to see in just a little bit, talking about the armor of God, that there's a reason that we have to put on the armor of God all the time is because the attacks of the enemy come swift. They come furious and they're constant. He doesn't rest. He doesn't stop. He wants to derail your life. He wants to derail my life. He wants to do everything that he can to shake our faith, to help us take our eyes off of God, to lose our trust in God. Not that you can lose your salvation or, or the relationship, but to lose the effectiveness, to lose that, the effectiveness in the communication where God is saying, this is what I want, and we hear that clearly, and then we go out motivated, empowered, and prepared to go do it, to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand. Satan wants nothing more than to derail that, to prevent us from fulfilling everything that God desires to do in and through us, but also to prevent us from bringing others into the kingdom of God. 
And it all comes back to trusting in God, to having this unwavering faith, not because of the faith itself, but because of who the faith is in. So none of these were perfect people, even in their faith, and yet they were all considered to have a good testimony unto God because of their faith in him. And we could go through all of the chapter and look at all of the different characters, and you would see how imperfect all the rest of them are as well. But this was enough for us to understand that we all have frailties and weaknesses, even in our faith. But God is rich in mercy and grace towards us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So it's because of God who is rich in mercy. It has nothing to do with us. It is God because of his great power and his great love and his tremendous mercy that even while we were dead in our trespasses, that he made us alive together with Christ. But then going on, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? Again, the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not that we can boast, not then, not now, not in the future. We can't boast in our works, and faith is works. We cannot boast in our own faith. If you show me someone that is boasting in their faith, I will show you someone that does not have their eyes on God. If you are boasting in your faith, you do not have your eyes on the one true living God. Because you have your eyes on your own faith, on your own works, on your own strength, on your own abilities. And it's not about that. It is about God. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus in verse 10 for good works. And we've been recreated out of nothingness that we have been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then you get to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, and he starts talking about the armor of God when he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It doesn't mention anything about us being strong in our own abilities, in our own faith, in our own trust, in our own anything. It is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. To put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, take up the whole armor of God. Not the armor of yourself, not the armor of, of what you can do, but the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So our strength, be it great or small, is flesh and blood. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting this battle against flesh and blood. We're fighting against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, the rulers of darkness, the principalities and the powers, and these are all unseen. And so we need to rely upon the strength of God, putting on the armor of God. 
And then he says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we're called to stand. He makes it a point to mention that we are called to stand. In verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and then having done all, to stand. And then in verse 14, he says, stand therefore. There is an emphasis on standing in the power of God. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The truth, the, the word of God. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness, the holiness, the the righteousness of God, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to stand in this. And then we get to verse 16, which ties it back to what we've been talking about. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Of all of the parts of the armor that Paul could have written that about, he wrote it about the shield of faith. He talked about all these things, and then he talks about a few more after it, but he says, above all, taking the shield of faith. That's not by coincidence. Those aren't just throwaway words. It's not just a a phrase that Paul needed to fill in a couple of extra lines with. That was divinely inspired to be put there. It says, above all else, take the shield of faith. And with that shield of faith, you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That is the last line of defense. Above all else, take the shield of faith. To trust that God is in control, that God knows what he's doing, and God knows how it's all going to end. And then he says, to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So again, the faith is not in man or man's abilities or man's promises or anything else that man can do. It's in God. It's our weak faith placed in a mighty God that quenches the fiery darts of the enemy. And then the helmet of salvation completes the protection. And then the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is the weapon for the battle. And on a side note, I think it's a beautiful picture here for us to recognize that salvation is a helmet to protect our head and our mind. And I, I, again, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe that it is a coincidence that the helmet is salvation. If salvation were a fleeting thing, something that I could lose, something that I could misplace and have to get back and then lose again and then get back again, I don't believe God would have inspired Paul to write about it as part of God's armor, especially the armor that would guard your head, which is where so much of the doubt resides. Because it, as he writes, and to confess with the mouth, but to know, to understand with the heart. So it's the head, that's where the doubt comes in. That's where the fear comes in. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. This is the living hope. This is the salvation that we have have come to. It's an inheritance that is incorruptible. That means it, it can't be messed up. It's undefiled. And it does not fade away. 
It is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by, again, not the power of man, not the faith of man, but the power of God through faith in God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so as we close tonight, just a few more verses that show God's faithfulness and God's promises to us. In Psalm 138, verse 2, it says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. That he, God has said that my word will never change. My word will never change. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he's promised never to leave us or forsake us. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Everywhere that there is authority, it has been given to Jesus. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age even to the end of the age, that no matter what happens in this life, that God is still there. He's promised us his perfect peace and that gift of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Again, it's the, the substance, the evidence of things unseen. Because the world neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And then further down in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And then verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then finally, he has promised to return for us, going all the way to the end. My son is reading through, he has to read the Bible every morning as part of his, his summer reading and, and things that he has to do. And, and so he gets to pick where he reads. He has to start a book and read all the way through it. And the other day, he was in Genesis, and then all of a sudden he asked if he could start in Revelation. I said, okay, but why do you want to read Revelation? He says, because I want to read the end. I want to see how it, how it all unfolds at the end how the story ends. And I thought that was so cool, especially when you get to the end of Revelation and you see Revelation 22, verses 12 through 13 and 20 through 21. It says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that is the hope. That's who we have the faith in. The, the one who says he's coming back, the one who's been faithful to everything that he's ever said, everything that, that he's ever promised to accomplish, he's done. And he's the one that says, I'm coming back and I'm coming quickly. And so the last thing that I want to leave you with tonight is a quote by a woman named Corey Tenboom. And we don't have time to go into the story of Corey Ten Boom, but if you don't know the story of Corey Ten Boom, I urge you to Google it and, and just learn about her. But she said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. 